Well, good morning again. I love coming to this church because there are so many dear friends that we have here uh, and because of your partnership in the gospel for many years now. Thank you so much for supporting our work in Asia and for praying for us and a delight to bring you God's word this morning. In the years after World War II, as nuclear competition between great powers began in earnest, uh, there was a group of researchers called the, the Atomic Scientists that started a publication called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And for 75 years now, uh, since its inception and whether the magazine was in print or now online, the, the cover page has always featured a simple clock. So hour hand and minute hand. And they call it the Doomsday Clock. Uh, it was meant to represent what, in their view, was the, the danger that humanity faces in the age of nuclear competition. So any, any clash between military powers uh, carries the possibility of Armageddon, and they wanted to bring awareness to that. That's what's meant by midnight on the clock. Uh, over the years, they've added uh, other calculations uh, other factors. So uh, they view it as a combination of the nuclear, the climate, the bioterrorism, whatever threats are out there to mankind's continued existence on the planet. The original setting in 1947 was 17 minutes till midnight. Now the clock has been adjusted 25 different times over the years. So eight backwards, 17 forwards. Before January 2020, the lowest points for the doomsday clock were 1953, when the U.S. and the Soviet Union first tested hydrogen bombs. And it reached that setting again in 2018, when North Korea and uh, tensions with the U.S., in their words, increased the possibility of nuclear war by accident or miscalculation. Since that point, they've moved it even closer. So 100 seconds to midnight on January 23, 2020, when Russia invaded Ukraine. And then this year on January 24, 2023, 90 seconds to midnight. They cited climate change, biological threats, and the rise of disinformation and disruptive technologies. Now, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s. I probably find this sort of thing a bit too interesting. I don't think the average person spends all that much time thinking about doomsday and the end of the world. I mean, it is summer, so I'm sure there are summer movies out there that are making a lot of money over the end of the world, but it's just too far from our daily lives, I think, to enter very closely. I mean, we probably wouldn't disagree that there are many dangers out there. We certainly hope for peace for stability and safety, but we're good as, as human beings at doing a sort of threat triage. I mean, something has to reach a certain likelihood of affecting my life before I'm going to let it into my thinking, so to speak. That work deadline is looming. That examination is coming. The details of life, just too numerous to count. And when it comes to global threats, what, what can we do anyway? It's just too far from where you and I live. So the atomic scientists may say that it's 90 seconds to midnight, but we're more focused on the fact that it's 90 minutes to lunch. 
whether the writers of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists are too alarmist or not, I think we can all admit that we are often asleep to some of the most important realities in life. That's true in our health. It's true in our finances. It's also true in our spiritual lives. Even as professing Christians, I think we can settle into a sort of spiritual cruise control where the great realities of God and sin and salvation and judgment are just shrugged off amidst the busyness of our lives. I want to look at Exodus 12 this morning and think about the Passover because it was a pivotal event in the life of Israel, but also because it teaches us how God wants us to remember and to keep fresh in our minds that which is most important. So I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 53. You can turn there. It'll, be, it'll help you uh, as we go through to follow along. Now, a bit of background to Exodus 12. Uh, this, this chapter is going to narrate the final of ten plagues that came upon Egypt in, in judgment for Pharaoh's unwillingness to obey God and let the people of Israel go. So the people had cried out to God for deliverance. He raised up Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh, said that they, he should let the, God's people go. He wouldn't listen. Here we're at the climax. But as you'll see as we read it, God is going to spend most of the chapter talking about how future generations are supposed to understand and remember this night. It was somehow essential to their ongoing lives to keep certain truths fresh in their minds so that they would be prepared for what lies ahead. So if you're taking notes, we'll consider three things that we need to prepare for what's coming. Number one, a suitable substitute. A suitable substitute. Number two, a working memory. A working memory. And number three, a right fear. And it's my prayer that wherever you are and whatever's going on in your life and your week upcoming, that these things would move to the top of your mind. So let's think, first of all, about a suitable substitute. I'll read Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. Your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right, so God is speaking to Moses and Aaron in this section. He's telling them how to prepare for the 10th plague. And they're going to pass these instructions on to the Israelites. But this plague is very different from the previous nine. So in the other plagues, when when darkness came over Egypt, in the land of Goshen where Israel was, there was no darkness. When, When boils came upon the Egyptians, they didn't come on the Israelites. They were exempted from those plagues. But this one is going to be different. They would have been surprised to realize they have to do something or this plague is going to come upon them as well. We have here a series of seven instructions all surrounding a lamb. We'll we'll walk through them quickly. Uh, First, a calculation, verses 3 and 4. Tenth day of the month, they were told to set aside a lamb, but, but if the family's not large enough... To eat a lamb, they would have to team up with other households. So so basically, over four days, I mean, you can imagine if we tried to do this here, I mean, we've got singles, we've got marrieds without kids, we've got some people with one or two kids, and then we've got bigger families, but we've got to figure out how many people, who's going to eat it together. So that's the calculation. Uh, Second, the suitability. Verse 5 says the lamb has to be without blemish, a male, a year old. Throughout the Old Testament, sacrifices were to be chosen based on this freedom from blemishes. It's partly to make sure the heart of the worshiper is right, but it's also to point to the need for a a perfect sacrifice. Calculation, suitability. Third, the timing. Verse 6, the 14th day at twilight, the whole assembly is going to kill the lambs at the same time. So this this ceremony, it takes place cognizant of family, but also the whole community, one large family together. For the blood, in verse 7, family plus the others that are going to eat the lamb together have to be in a house, ready for the meal. So so you get inside, you kill the lamb, got to drain the blood into a basin of some kind. And then with this, uh, some sort of an improvised paintbrush of, of branches or something. You've got you've to paint the doorframe of the house. I, I come from a family of house painters. I know how to paint a doorframe. This is weird. Painting with blood, it's very odd even to think about. But the, the door is the interface with the outside world. I mean, you can imagine if this room didn't have any doors here, if that was the only door and we were inside looking at it, I mean, that, that door has significance for us. It It's what stands between us and whatever is outside. Five, the meal, verses eight and nine. It's an interesting menu. They have to roast the meat on a spit. Uh, I went camping in in the hills of Tibet one time, and for a number of days we ate only vegetables, and our guide at some point asked us if we wanted meat. We said, yes, we want meat. And I don't know where he got it, but he trotted in a lamb that they proceeded to kill and, and run a, I'll spare you the details, run a pole through it and, and put it on a spit and, and roast it. It's the easiest and the fastest way to, to cook something. So, so that is how they're going to eat the, 
the meat, no need to draw water for boiling, no need for bowls or pans. But then this meat is accompanied with unleavened bread. So just simple flat bread, doesn't need time to rise. And then bitter herbs, which are the simplest to gather and cook. So a strange menu. It's five, the meal. Number six, the cleanup, verse 10. Basically no leftovers. Whatever you don't eat, you have to burn. I think this means to show the once-for-all sufficiency of the sacrifice. And then seventh and finally, the dress code there in verse 11. So the, the loose robes that they would have worn were to be gathered up with a belt, like you're going out walking, their, their sandals are on, your, your walking staff is in your hand, so, so they're to eat it in haste, quickly, wolfing it down. Like, we've got to go in a moment, hurry up. So that's all the preparation. Calculation, the suitability, the timing, the blood, the meal, the cleanup, and the dress code. But how do we understand what, what's happening here? Well, in verse 11, we read the words, it is the Lord's Passover. To, to the first hearers, that would have been a strange name for a strange meal. But God explains himself there in verse 12 and 13. It's going to pass through the land of Egypt. It's going to strike the first one. That's what God had told Pharaoh back in chapter 4 he was going to do. He says, if, if you won't let my, my son Israel go, then I will strike your son. God further explains in verse 12 that in addition to judging Pharaoh, he's executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Egypt was a land of many gods. They they worship the sun god and the fertility god and the god of the Nile. So, so each of the plagues can be understood as, as targeting the foolishness of worshiping invented god. So here in the tenth plague, we're told that the true god judges the Egyptian deities, not that they're there and could understand it, they don't exist, but they're being exposed as, as frauds, phonies. Friends, in an age of pluralism, it, it's essential that we be clear that there is only one true and living God. There's only one God that made the heavens and the earth. That, that is the God with whom we have to deal, ultimately. He, he's the one, only one rightly worshipped, but he's also the only one who can save. The gods of the nations are nothing. I live in Singapore where there's a great swirl of religions. And the government, understandably, there wants to preserve religious harmony. And as Christians, we're all for religious harmony. Other people, any people, are deserving of great respect. I have to listen well to my Muslim neighbors and my Hindu neighbors. But as we talk together, we're, we're clear with each other. They're clear with me. I'm clear with them that, that we're not both right on this. We understand the Bible to teach that there is only one God who is there. Now, for the believer, it's, it's the next line in verse 13 that needs our attention. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, so God is pictured as coming to strike Egypt, and, and as he does so, he's heading... For the houses where they are, the Israelites are. But if he sees the blood, if they believe his words and by faith have, have hidden themselves under the blood, then he's going to pass over. But without that lamb, without that blood, the tenth plague is going to fall on them. 
It's going to destroy them. A firstborn in their house was also going to die. I think the clear and enduring message is that they need a substitute, a suitable substitute. The Egyptians deserve judgment, but apparently so do the Israelites. I think what's being dispelled here for them and for us, it's a very natural question. If God is so powerful, then why doesn't he just overlook sin? It's easier for you and I to assume that that love comes more easily for God than holiness or justice or wrath. That God's holiness and justice are in some sense negotiable, especially when it comes to saving people. But when we come to places like this, we've got to correct our thinking. Without a suitable substitute, God cannot, he will not save anyone. The wages of sin is death. And death there must be. Either the sinner dies, or one who can suitably take the sinner's place. You know, we who have the whole Bible can see how the Passover lamb was creating the grammar, the the category, the mental picture of salvation for what would be the death of the Messiah, ultimately. In every one of the gospel accounts about the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel writer emphasizes that Jesus' suffering and death happened at the Passover. His last supper was a a Passover meal. Jesus' innocence is proclaimed by Pilate so, so that Jesus could be understood to be a lamb without blemish. When the apostles like Paul went out to preach, they proclaimed that Jesus was the Passover lamb. And when the Bible concludes, the saints are pictured as singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. But none of that will mean anything to you if you don't accept a double premise. First, that you even need a substitute. And second, that the substitute has been provided through Jesus Christ. One of the clearest things we see in Israel's history is that many people existed as a part of the covenant community and they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't believe. And the same can be true for us, friends. Being in a church doesn't make you a believer. You have to understand yourself to be in incredible need before God. You have to understand that he met that need through the coming of Jesus, to die in your place. Are you ready to meet your maker? There's no more important question for you to think about this morning. Are you under the blood? We need a suitable substitute. That's the first thing we see in Exodus 12. But let's continue in the text and think about the second thing we need, a working memory. Pick it up in verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. 
Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. We'll stop there. You know, quite a few times in this story, we, we realize that it's being written at a later time. So Moses is writing this, we think, on the plains of Moab before they entered the promised land. And he's concerned that the next generation not forget what has been done to redeem Israel. Uh, they either pass it on to their children or it's, it's lost. I want us to notice three memory aids that he gives them. First, the calendar, looking back up in, in verse 2, all the way at the beginning, the, the entire year for the Israelites is, is marked out according to the Passover. It's a constant reminder of the redemption that makes them a community. You know, our calendar as Christians doesn't work the same way in terms of months reminding us where we are, but, but we have weeks. Our weeks do that. When we call Sunday the first day of the week the Lord's Day, it's because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, but it gives us that kind of regular calendar marker as we gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. We're, we're remembering what Jesus did to redeem us and his resurrection that gives us the hope of eternal life. I hope that's something you appreciate. I, I, I am so forgetful as the week goes on. If I don't have Sunday as a reminder of what the Lord has done for us, I can forget. We all can forget. So, beloved, you know, sometimes people ask me, are we required to come to church on Sunday? And I think, oh, you're thinking about it all wrong. We have this as a gift from the Lord. So our calendar is supposed to remind us. But second, notice that for the Israelites, this feast of unleavened bread, it's called a memorial day here, a day of remembering. And we see in verse 16, it's a week-long feast, an assembly beginning on the first day. They have this assembly on the first day and then again on the seventh day. And to prepare for it, they have to remove all leaven from their houses, which may not seem like a big deal to you. You probably, if you have yeast in your house, it's probably in a little box. Uh, but to, to a, a community that would be regularly baking, they, they had to, to hunt down any yeast that's anywhere and remove it from their house so that they can spend the week eating this cracker-like flatbread. 
Every meal then would have had this this built-in reminder of what they were celebrating. Why are we eating this terrible bread? Well, it's because the Lord released us from slavery. On the night we ate the Passover and we had no time to allow the bread to rise. So we ate flat bread. It's a way of remembering. The language there in verse 15 and 19 of the, the person being cut off from Israel, it underscores how important this was. The person who refuses to, to remember is cut off from the blessings of being God's people. They show themselves to not really believe, to not really care. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up this language of removing the leaven. 1 Corinthians 5. The context there is a professing believer who, who's living in unrepentant sin. Paul there urges the church to clarify the person's unbelieving state by putting them out of church membership. Listen to what he says. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, so this duty that they had to memorialize and remember the Passover lamb, it, it maps onto the duty that you and I have to make sure we're living like redeemed people. That we aren't just claiming to be Christians, but we're actually living like it. That we haven't forgotten what should have happened to us or the price of our redemption. Sincerity and truth should mark us. That, that's part of your job description as a Christian. Is there any unrepentant sin in your life this morning? Is there, is there someone that you're refusing to forgive? Even though you know that God in Christ has forgiven us, and we know we're supposed to forgive as he did forgive us. Is there some lust of the flesh that you're giving into? What, what is the leaven that you need to remove? But then, secondly, as a community, do you take seriously your job description as a member of this church? The idea is that we love each other by being honest with each other. It, if a, if a brother or sister sees something in my life that is not right, they have a duty to speak with me out of love. That's why later in the same book of 1 Corinthians, uh, when Paul instructs us how to keep the Lord's Supper, which is our equivalent of the, the Passover meal, it's our meal of remembering, Paul says that as, as Jesus takes the bread of the Passover meal and the cup of the Passover meal, and he says, this is my body and blood, and says, do this in remembrance of me, it's a solemn duty that we are undertaking. So, so how seriously do you take the celebration of the Lord's Supper? It's not an impressive menu, I'll grant you. But it's meant to make sure we're living like people who know the price of our redemption. But I want you to see a, a third important way that we preserve the memory of what God has done. That's the command to teach the children there in verse 24 to 27. So after commanding them to keep this right forever, Moses has us picture the children asking, what do you mean by this service? And children, I, I want you to notice that you should be asking this kind of question. What do these things mean? And as parents, I want you to notice that the answer is clear, direct, and short. 
Children don't want long-winded answers any more than they want long-winded sermons, I can assure you. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. I often lean over to my children during the Lord's Supper and, and speak to them about the bread and the cup. If and when our children reach the age of maturity and when they can show evidence to the covenant community that they are regenerate believers and are baptized upon their profession of faith into membership in the covenant community, they no longer need to ask. But until then, mark well your duty in families to speak about these things, to remember them together. Fathers, to you in particular, let me remind you that you have the responsibility to teach the gospel to your children. You're the spiritual leader of your home. What is happening at the office is not more important than what's happening at home. Let your effort reflect that you believe that. In Singapore, I'm bewildered by the, the sheer volume of after-school educational opportunities that there are for children. They, they call it tuition. It's, it's an incredible industry there, and, and I take it as a sign of how precious children are to their parents. But, but parents, what good is it to raise kids who, who pass exams and play Mozart and build robots and win athletic competitions if they don't know the meaning of these things? Can't control, ultimately, whether they believe it or not. But we want both our words and our life to testify powerful to the truth. So the first thing we need is suitable sacrifice. The second thing we need, a working memory. There's a third thing we need in this text to prepare for what's coming, and that's a right fear. A right fear. Let's pick it up in verse 28. And the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The instructions have been given. The people went and did as they were commanded. And this would have taken faith. I'm sure some simply went along with the crowd, but, but you don't kill a lamb for no reason. And this strange painting of the, the door frame requires belief. And they're eating this strange meal with, with bread that doesn't taste very good and very simple roasted meat and bitter herbs. Maybe this would have helped them reflect on the bitterness of their time in Egypt. Sadly, they would forget this later. They then would have settled down to wait. Still dressed, still watching, still listening. I wonder what they would have been thinking as time passed. The narration of the 10th the plague is remarkably brief, to the point. Just one verse. 
At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. We get a clarifying statement that from the palace to the dungeon to even out in the field among the livestock, all the firstborn die. As best as I can understand it, it's, it's the firstborn son in families with no son, perhaps the oldest daughter. But well, let's stop and think about that for a minute. The ages would have varied, some older, some young, infants, toddlers, teens. I assume many would have laid down to sleep without a care in the world. What kind of plans did they have for the next day? What kind of hopes and dreams? And how did they die? How did their family members know that they had died? Perhaps some knew about what Moses had told Pharaoh. Would they have been checking just in case? The, the text records that from Pharaoh to his servants and all the Egyptians, they rose up in the night. And a great cry, which would have begun with the first to realize what had happened and alerted others, and it would have become a great rolling wail throughout the land. There was no house where there was not someone dead. Moses and Aaron receive word. The text there says summoned. I think it's better rendered called out to or sent word to. Moses had told Pharaoh that they would never meet face to face again. But they're told to go out unconditionally as God said they would be. I think Pharaoh's cry for blessing recalls an aging Jacob blessing Pharaoh hundreds of years earlier when they first came to Egypt. But, but of course, this desire for blessing from the God of the Hebrews was a short-lived desire for Pharaoh. What would the effect have been on God's people remembering this night? What's the effect on all of us who read it these many years later? When we picture them in their homes, hearing the wailing, staring at the, the blood running down the, the doorframe in the light of the full moon. Maybe many things mixed together. Fear, Gratitude, relief. But I want to submit that a right sort of fear would have been a huge part of their enduring memory because seared into their minds would have been the great danger of being outside. Fear and relief. In the same way that those on the ark would have watched the rising water and shuddered to think about the reality of judgment. Here it would have been even more personal because, because God is out there and, and you know you can't meet him as you are. Not without the lamb. But hallelujah for the lamb. When it says there was not a house where someone was not dead, it was even true of the Israelite houses because there was a dead lamb. The body of a spotless lamb. Friends, do you fear God? Are you a God-fearing man? God-fearing woman. You might think, doesn't, doesn't perfect love drive out fear? Well, yes, it does. Perfect love drives out the fear that has to do with punishment. And by God's grace, the punishment that should fall on us fell upon Christ if you trust in him today. But you know, when the, the apostle Peter connects the blood of an unblemished lamb to something, he connects it to fear. 1 Peter 1, he says this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We conduct ourselves with fear because God judges, because we've been ransomed. I know that I have to stand before my maker one day, and so do you. The rest of the problems in our lives are just details. They're trivialities. Whatever is that foremost anxiety in your life right now, if it's not this, it's not that important. There is a doomsday clock in that sense. It has nothing to do with nuclear Armageddon, anything happening in Ukraine. It has to do with the fact that it is appointed for every single one of us to die. And after that comes judgment. It is minutes till midnight. The question is, do you have a refuge? You know, we could mistakenly read this text, I think, as the night when time ran out for Egypt. But it wasn't. The firstborn was just a fraction of the whole. It was in many ways an evangelistic judgment because it called out to everyone living and said, this is what happens when you meet God without the Lamb. And I don't know how many minutes it actually is till midnight, but we can't waste any opportunity to get ready. So this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Place yourself under the blood. And having done so, Remember what he's done every Lord's Day, every Lord's Supper. Teach the children the meaning of these things. And over all of that, put a right fear of the God of judgment and of mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning for the grace to see you rightly for who you are and to understand the way of salvation that you have made available to us. Give us the faith to trust in that. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.